This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Dude, you can't tell anybody about this. Gotta keep it a secret. A secret? Why? Because you know what she's like. If she finds out, people try and kill me every single night. She's not going to let me do this anymore. Okay, 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 okay. I'll level with you. I don't think I can keep this a secret. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I can't believe this is happening. Turns out Peter Parker and I have a lot in common. It's been 12 years, Adam. I don't think your Aunt May is going to care that you talk about movies in a Spider-Man costume. She can never know. And actually, it's my Spider-Man underoos. <laughs> well, the secret's out on Spider-Man Homecoming. After a failed reboot in 2012 and then a sequel in 2014, the new Spidey is a hit. We have our review plus plus. Listen to all this. We're going to review David Lowry's A Ghost Story and Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. All of that and more. Nothing, Aunt May. Just talking to my friend Josh about hockey. Ahead on Film Spotty. We haven't had a chance to do donations and thank yous here in a while. So real quickly, we wanted to thank some of these listeners who have sent their hard-earned cash our way in support of the show. Brian, Gregory, they're from Parts Unknown. Josh, Johan, he's in a neighborhood in Malmo, Sweden. Levi in Seattle who says, love the show, have owed you a donation for about three years now. And Lorraine in Greater Manchester, UK, we heard from her a few weeks ago with a donation and she decided to send us a little bit more, Josh. I owe you this. For the years, I've had the pleasure of discovering films I never would have watched without your, Adam, Josh's, and Sam's ability to inspire interest, entertain, and convey your passion for the film industry. Keep up the excellent work. Thank you so much, Lorraine. A new $5 a month donor, Kathleen in Westfield, Massachusetts. A gold-level donor, Sam F. in New York City. A big thank you to Adam, Josh, and everyone else behind the scenes who make film spotting possible. And Jacob in Vista, California. This donation is for the A Single Man Fund, Jacob writes. Since Phillips mentioned it, I never get tired about hearing how beautiful this film is. Also, take to Ms. Amarpour's advice and watch Trained Busan, if only for the amazing Korean actors. During my conversation with Anna Lily Amarpour, she did recommend that film. Finally, a Platinum Club donor, Glenn Nelson in Santa Cruz, California. Yesterday, I was listening to the grief episode. By the time Adam and Michael hit their number two, I began to feel a blend of anger, despair, and grief that one of the most beautiful and moving films in my panoply would not be mentioned. And then Adam redeemed himself with his number one, and certainly mine, Blue. 
Has there ever been a more perfect film? Yes, perhaps Red. Well, you can tell how I feel about Kieślowski. <laughs> also, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview, although mostly I don't enjoy the interviews. Thanks, Glenn. And now I simply must see A Girl Walks Home Alone at night. It's been in my queue for a long time. Okay, so the interview made him want to see that film, which he does absolutely need to see. And for the amount of money he sent us, Josh, he can slag my interviews all day long. A no-cost way you can help the show, rate or review us at Apple Podcasts. Every five-star rating, every review really does help us reach new listeners. Thanks to Analogically Jenna XYZ and Inda Dark No More for taking the time to post a review recently. Just to be clear, Analogically uh-huh. and Jenna XYZ, two different people. Two different. Yes, See, yes. Sam doesn't like to use commas for some reason, and that gets confusing. This is the first time we've been together in the studio since mid-June, so it's only been a week without any fresh content. We've managed still to churn out some film-spotting shows over that time, but you've been on the road, I've been on the road, we are back. Do you know how to do this still? (laughs) We'll find out. You look vaguely familiar, so that's a good start. (laughs) Yeah, we've had a series of guest hosts. I've been popping on other podcasts, but... It is good to be home, so let's give this a try. Let's do it. There are a lot of movies out there right now or opening soon that are worthy of discussion here on Film Spotting. Next week, we will get to Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, and maybe we'll have time to fit in some thoughts as well on War for the Planet of the Apes, a movie at this point we have not seen, but hope to remedy that for next week's show. Later in this episode, we will get to Spider-Man Homecoming and Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. But first, with a costume budget nowhere near that of Spider-Man, all it really needs is a bedsheet. A ghost story quietly drifts into the blockbuster summer season. Here's our counter-programming review. When I was little, we used to move all the time. I'd write these notes, and I would fold them up really small, and I would hide them. What'd they say? They were just like things I wanted to remember, so that if I ever wanted to go back, there'd be a piece of me there waiting. Josh, we have three reviews to get to on this show. We're going to skip the formalities. We're going to jump right into a ghost story. And I love this story I read in David Ehrlich's article from Sundance back in January, where he interviewed Rooney Mara, also interviewed the director and writer of A Ghost Story, David Lowry. And in his IndieWire piece, he shares this. A ghost story began as a fight between Lowry and his wife, filmmaker Augustine Frizzell. She wanted them to move to Los Angeles. He wanted them to stay in Texas. Quote, it was literally like I didn't want to leave this one particular house, Lowry recalled. I was so bummed out. Our bed was gone. We were sleeping on the floor. But still, I was like, I love this place. I don't want to leave. What if we just stayed? So in some ways, I feel like you can see the film A Ghost Story as this bit of cosmic punishment maybe for his own stubbornness. He forced himself to make a movie in which the main character is relegated to that life. Casey Affleck plays that character. He doesn't have a name in the movie, neither does his wife. They just have initials we see in the end credits. This film actually reunites Mara and Casey Affleck from Lowry's 2013 indie debut Ain't Them Body Saints. He went on to make Pete's Dragon, which was a big commercial success, and he returned certainly to his indie roots here. A lot less CGI 
in a ghost story, as you joked earlier, it really does rely on a bedsheet. Affleck's character dies early in the film and comes back as a ghost wearing a sheet, just like we all did when we were pretending to be ghosts as kids. And he stays around the house and watches his wife and other inhabitants of that house. Did you find yourself feeling like a ghost story was a punishment at all for you? Did his cheap theatrics, I suppose, that gag idea that almost doesn't seem like it should work over the course of a feature film of a ghost wearing that bedsheet, does it lead to something more profound? I don't think anyone would find this film to be a punishment, but I could see people finding it to be silly for some of the reasons you described. The fact that they are relying on this actual sheet with the two holes, the scissor cut holes for eyes. I found it to be sublime. I really enjoyed this picture. Maybe that's the wrong word, though. I really responded to Mm -hmm. the aura of loneliness that it managed to capture. I didn't read that David Ehrlich interview, so I didn't know that background, but it does illuminate why the movie has such a strong sense of place and that it's very much may have started in an argument, a relational situation. But I think as the narrative of the film progresses, we move beyond the central relationship and it does become a larger meditation on what being stuck in a place might mean, both physical and emotional. And yeah, I didn't none of the things that could have been silly struck me that way for a moment. Mm -hmm. I really was caught up in this. I think every aesthetic choice worked from the long takes to the patient use of movement in the film. Affleck barely, barely moves. And when he does, it's for very particular reasons. But quite often, this figure is just standing in Mm -hmm. the corner of the frame. We should also talk about the frame itself, which is a boxy aspect ratio with these Instagram rounded corners. I just think all the choices here came together to capture a sense of stillness that in turn projected a certain loneliness that almost, for me, became unbearable. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if the filmmakers, Lowry and his actors and collaborators, even though he wrote and directed this, if everyone involved felt the same way because the movie offers a release valve that I'm still thinking about. Hmm. In the moment, I – appreciated it because I needed that release, but I wonder if it does take a little bit away from the purity of what the film for me captured so well for most of its running hmm. time. We'll maybe get there and maybe have to we dance will. around it a little bit, but yeah, this really worked a number on me. Yeah, I guess I would say maybe anticipating where you're going with the end of this film, which of course we will not get into any details about that there's perhaps a difference between release and relief and That maybe is where I fall with the movie. I'm very wary here of not falling into that kind of critical cop-out where you say something like, I don't really know what I thought of this movie, but I know I need to see it again. I'm going to do my best to articulate my reaction to the film. But it is. It's sort of indescribable and unbelievable in a lot of ways. The best praise I can heap on this movie is that it's haunting and ephemeral in precisely the way a movie about a ghost who can't stop hanging around his house should be. And more than any questions or answers, what it provokes, it sounds like you had a very similar reaction to me, what it provokes is a feeling. From its opening moments, there's almost nothing real or tangible about this world. Where is this house exactly? Who are these people? We get snapshots that 
Casey Affleck is playing a musician, and we're not quite sure if she does anything. And we don't know who they live by, if they have any other family members, what their life was like before. There's no sense of any of that. So it's a film where Lowry has, right from the beginning, created his own universe, albeit a familiar one. Of course, there are lots of things that do feel familiar about it. Mundane It's a a ranch house in a nondescript, rural-type neighborhood. Exactly. If there is ultimately a message here or any truths about whatever, mortality, marriage, grief, the utter ineffability and ruthlessness of time, the deep emotional attachments we often develop to objects and places like Lowry suggested he had to that house— And these things have no emotional attachment back to us, and yet we can feel so strongly about them. I don't know what those lessons would be after watching this film. I do know that I think the movie is about all of those things, and it did almost physically make me feel the weight of all of those things as I watched it, which what more can a piece of art do than make you feel that? Yeah, I felt a weight, too. I think that's a good way to describe it. The the heaviness of this film, it finally came to bear on me in a sequence that moves well beyond the central couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already hinted at it. This ghost figure after the Mara character moves out, which is heartbreaking enough on its own that he has to watch her moving on with her life. There's maybe half of the film yet to go because then he sits there and watches as another family moves in and then some renters come in and eventually we go way beyond that. I mean, decades decades at least (laughs) are covered in this film and you almost as feel here going back to the use of the frame that reminded me of Instagram, reminds me of snapshots. You almost feel like this this ghost is just drifting through these photo albums Mm -hmm. of other people's lives and never really gets to settle anywhere. And it is, as I said, unbearably lonely and sad. But that moment where he looks out the window and sees in the house next door Another ghost in a sheet. And they look at each other. And here's a moment where things could have gone, if you bring the wrong attitude to this movie or you're not on board from the beginning, this is going to be another silly moment. They Mm -hmm. look at each other and they communicate via subtitles. And this new ghost that the Affleck ghost sees simply says, I'm waiting for someone. The Mm -hmm. Affleck ghost asks who? And the secondary ghost says, I don't remember. Right. That is when I was like – I want out because it just it's not only the stating of that sort of experience to be longing for something you can now no longer even remember. But again, through the music, through the establishment of mood, you feel that you're not just hearing about it. You feel it. I think the score is crucial to this by Daniel Hart. It's very string heavy. My favorite of the year. I believe I it. I love it that much. It defines the first maybe mm-hmm. 10 minutes of the film and carries over. There's also very judicious use of dark rooms. I get overwhelmed. It's presented as a composition that the Affleck right. character has Haven't made. Haven't heard of them or that song, but I was going to look it up because I love it. What a perfect fit. Yeah. So these elements all do combine so that when I saw that secondary ghost and learned of that experience, I I was kind of like, I I can't take Mm -hmm. more of this. It's bad enough watching the Affleck character and now to hear about this. Um, But we're just so immersed in what the movie is trying to create 
uh, which which I think is a testament to to the power of of Lowry's vision and the people who have helped him carry it out. Yeah, I said there were no simple truths here, but that moment you talked about with the other ghost in that line, you feel that so much, I think, because it really does encapsulate the entire film in some ways in that it suggests the central conundrum of life in general, right? Which is, we all know it's meaningless. Ultimately, we all know that it's all going to end. And in the grand scheme of things, we're so minuscule and unimportant. And yet, we persist. And yet, we go on. That's the contradiction. So that relates to the soliloquy we get, mm-hmm. which I did want to get your opinion Will on. Will Oldham. There's a scene, a guy yes, at the party. maybe three-fourths of the way through. Renters, it looks like, have now moved into the home. They're throwing a party. And it really gives way to maybe a five-minute speech mm-hmm. that this one party-goer gives that relates some of those things you were talking sure. about. And part of me was thinking, okay, is this where the filmmakers lost faith in the ineffability of what was going on and they want a chance to It doesn't feel it? that way to me. Or... Or are they setting this guy up as a joke? Are they lampooning his pontificating? I kind of like the latter option. It probably is a little of both. I mean, (laughs) in the moment, I love the performance and I love what he is trying to articulate. At the same time, I was hoping someone in the room would throw a shoe at him or something. Like if you were at a party and that guy was pontificating, nobody would have listened that long. I mean, nobody would have listened at all. (laughs) But I think it worked, Josh, because I don't think. It's a case where it's trying to articulate the central theme of the movie, even though in some ways it does. It felt appropriately indulgent in a movie where we may get to it. We watch another character eat an entire pie Mm -hmm. and it takes like five minutes. So this film, you said, very deliberate, very patient. And you talked a lot about mood. And I did go back and look at my brief letterbox review of Ain't Them Bodies Saints. I was not a big fan of his debut film. I was mixed on it. We were both fans of Pete's Dragon, but my review was in the form of a quick Q&A. I asked, can a movie get by almost entirely on its ability to evoke mood? A specific sense of time, place, emotion, even if the whole undertaking largely feels not just cribbed from similar better films, see Malick, Terrence, but as if it exists solely to recreate the mood originally evoked by those similar better films. And my answer was, when it's made by someone as talented as David Lowery clearly is, and he's worked as an editor and as a cinematographer on other really good films that also evoke mood, and he's working with a talented cast as he is here, Mara in that film, Affleck, Keith Carradine, Ben Foster as well, my answer was, Almost. I mean, it can almost work, but it crumbles under the weight of it. And I think the reason this film, for me, is so similar. I mean, that same question about evoking that specific sense of time, place, and emotion, it certainly applies Mm -hmm. to everything about a ghost story and why it's so good. I think the reason it works better than it does for me than Ain't Them Body Saints is because of the simplicity of it, not that Saints is an overly complex film, but this doesn't feel overburdened by its style, even with it being shot, as you noted, in that Academy ratio where it's square with those rounded edges. There is an originality to the film because we simply almost can't believe that we're watching this type of ghost story unfold. And while it may not be silly or it may not be the type of film that is designed to provoke a bunch of laughter and didn't provoke a lot of laughter in me— it does, unlike Eighth and Body Saints, have a sense of humor. True. A guy in a sheet silently just appearing in the back of a shot as mm-hmm. someone is 
gazing at something or whatever they're doing and we just feel that ghost kind of come into the frame, that's inherently kind of funny. And two ghosts communicating to each other through windows Mm -hmm. is also funny as serious and also as tragic and heartbreaking and lonely as it is. That's what I love about this movie. Even, yes, eating an entire pie from start to finish, basically devouring it in real time, that simultaneous bit of self-indulgence and self-punishment feels completely truthful to that character in that moment, that grieving character. At the same time, it's kind of funny. Yeah, we'll we'll get to the pie, but I think the movie sets the tone right when the ghost first appears with this acknowledgement that this is slightly humorous in yes. the way he's in the morgue on a slab and just rises up mm-hmm. and sort of looks around. And absolutely, you sense that the movie is aware at how goofy this kind of is. It puts us at unease. At this point, also, we don't quite know what sort of ghost story this is going to be. No. It could still potentially be scary. At the very beginning, Affleck and Mara wake up to a literal bump in the night. He thinks he sees something floating, a light at the top of the ceiling at another moment. So you get the sense, you know, this thing could go scary. But I think it starts to really establish its tone when he does rise up mm-hmm. on that cart and starts walking down the halls while still allowing for this little bit sense of magic and wonder to it as well. So it doesn't take itself too seriously. Absolutely. I think the pie-eating scene, which we can say is the Mara character, this is after Affleck, has died. Wow. I'm sold on Mara now more than I ever have been. I think I've been slow to connect with her performances, which is probably partly by design. I think she's one of those actors who does keep the audience at a distance purposefully. Many of her characters are like that. And here I found her nonverbal acting, which is largely what she has to do, so evocative, Mm -hmm. so able to capture the way grief can make something like doing the dishes debilitating, which I think is where that scene begins. It's just this going through the daily motions of life that you still feel like you have to do, even though you might not feel like you have the energy to even get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And her slowness in her movements and then the way she just falls to the floor, takes that pie, which has been left as a gesture of consolation by a friend and angrily devours it in a gesture I felt that said, if I keep my body busy this way, I won't cry. Yeah. Um, and then to watch her suffer the repercussions of that, that's it's, it's really quite a scene. It is. And we were talking about the feeling and the weight that this movie produces on us as viewers. I think it is tied to, I'm pretty sure you used the word deliberate, it is, how patient it is, I think how it alternates between showing us the ghost's point of view and also allowing us to simply observe and to exist in this space with the ghost and the characters he's observing and also how it deals with the passage of time. And you've hinted at this a little bit. All I really want to say is we don't observe the same house and the same person or people for the whole movie, nor do we observe them over the same time period. Lowry, very subtly, but on a grand scale here, elides time. And one of the thrills of it for me is wondering, I was wondering watching it, if the way we as audience members are experiencing time, is it different from the way the ghost is experiencing time or the same? In other words, if a year or two passes 
on screen in seconds. Is that the filmmaker compressing his story for us because we can't linger over every shot and every moment? Or it would be who knows how long of a film? Or is that a version of life in whatever purgatory state this is? Is that how time works in this vision of the afterlife? I'm going to say no. That's not how time works. Okay. Uh, I think we're experiencing it differently, yet the reason the movie has such power— Well, the reason the movie has such power is because it gives us just enough of a taste of what it would be like. Mm -hmm. And that, again, has to do with the stillness. It has to do with the patient long takes. It has to do with the times that we're allowed to watch the ghost sit on a couch by himself just looking at an empty room. Mm -hmm. And I think we get enough of that where when we do take these jumps forward in time, um, we're understanding that at least I felt like I took a breath of relief because I didn't have to sit there as long as that character did. But the hmm. movie captured it well enough for me. I mean, it, this is where it's an inversion of a, of a regular ghost story, which you said the ghost's point of view. That is exactly what we're getting, which usually we would get only if a specter is threatening someone, perhaps. And here uh, it's been flipped so that this ghost is being haunted by the living. First a loved one, which is hard enough, and then these other spirits who float into his quote-unquote life, are there for a while, disrupt him, whatever sort of setup he's created, and just float away and move on and someone else comes in. Yeah, I will say that there is reason to believe watching the film that the movie is suggesting that time doesn't unfold necessarily in a linear fashion. And so if that's the case, then why can't it unfold in any kind of nonlinear way? So that's something I do think is at least worth pondering as you see the film. I think a lot of what's so engaging about the movie as well is our connection to the ghost, where you're seeing this character covered in a sheet. You said there are eyes, but you don't see any eyes. You just see the yeah, holes. it's just black. So there's no eyes or anything to respond to, and there's no blatant physicality. You could talk about Affleck, though. I'm pretty sure Affleck's not under the white sheet the entire time. I don't know. I'm going to say he probably wasn't because he was probably off making some other movie. But there is a physicality to the performance. I don't want to suggest that there isn't, but there's also not a lot of movement. He is pretty much a still figure. So when something dramatic does happen, and there are moments where something dramatic happens, you cut to a reaction shot. There's no actual reaction, except there is in a way, because that's how cinema works, right? I mean, just go back to the Kuleshov effect. You show a cake or a piece of pie, maybe, perhaps, Josh, in this case, and then you cut to one of us looking at that piece of pie. Everybody watching is going to assume that we're hungry. Lowry's built his entire movie in a way on each individual audience member ascribing their own reactions and drawing their own conclusions from those reaction shots and those moments. And I think that could perhaps turn some viewers off and just say, I need a little more. It has to be more of a give and take, and that's fine. I get that. Or it's this constant state of engagement where you feel that charge of being asked to put those feelings or put the mental state, if you will, back onto this ephemeral figure. Well, and that's maybe where the simple costume design is a stroke of genius. Because instead of a blank screen, you get a blank sheet. We project whatever we want on it. Yeah. So you brought this up a little bit, but weirdly, another wonder of this film, I think, is that it is fair to say a fairly bleak movie. There aren't many moments of joy. I would say there's no real payoff 
philosophically, intellectually, maybe not even emotionally in terms of if you are looking for the movie to have kind of puzzle pieces that fit together at the end and give you a sense of, oh, okay, now I understand why, why I watched this for 92 minutes. And yet the more it shows how totally inconsequential our lives are and how cyclical existence is, there is this repetition of certain moments and actions and emotions by people who are often spaced apart by time. They do not exist in the same space, do not know each other at all, and yet they repeat some of these same movements and rituals. That somehow makes it hopeful. Now, I don't know that I would say the ending is happy. I would say that there is a sense of hope, and that was certainly sufficient and welcome to me. It was absolutely welcome because, as I've described, that's what I needed. That's what my emotional state needed. I guess my only hesitation in this escape hatch that the movie presents is it comes fairly suddenly and I felt that it betrayed a little bit of this mood that we keep returning to that word, this mood that had been so carefully constructed, so elaborately built and so magically sustained kind of disappeared Hmm. a little too quickly for me. But again, that's something you said you want to see this again that I really want to ask when I do watch the movie again, because it could be something that's on a second viewing I see fits a little bit better with what came before. Maybe it connects to these this element of hope that you detected in mm-hmm. the earlier patterns. Uh, but yeah, the first viewing was kind of like a whew, and then a aw. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I think I might have that reaction or maybe the reason we have opposing reactions is your view of the film may rely on an interpretation that has a different understanding or a different perception of what that moment actually means. Wherever this figure is ending up, maybe you have a different sense of it than I do. But beyond that, we I also— haven't, I haven't even really thought about okay. that part of it, so yet, I wonder, to be honest with you. probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense what I'm saying anyway, but I'll get <laughs> at it another way. And more provocatively, it may even have more to do with our individual views of— any type of potential afterlife. If if you have one that's a little bit more in line with your way of viewing the world, then you might see that ending a little differently than me. Yeah, honestly, that's something I am genuinely still trying to work around is how I fit that framework, any sort of religious framework onto this movie. I haven't come to a conclusion on that. I think if you look at how the film itself presents its ending and how it frames it, and the multiple ways we see this act, I think it very much presents it as a positive conclusion and a place, okay. a better place. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I, I would the say way, the, the absolutely. Yeah, we, the, we were dancing. Around. We should almost do spoilers <laughs> about this because I, I think the the events leading up to it, choices that are made, acts that precipitate what happens, uh-huh. it's presented as a moment of. Um, possible reunion, a moment I, of release, I, I don't a moment see it that of escape. Way. No. Oh, absolutely. No. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's unequivocal I mean, is th- that it's meant to be an affirming conclusion. Uh, that's I, clear to me. I, that's There's no way that's unequivocal because that's not how I see it at all. That doesn't mean I don't see it as an escape. That doesn't mean I don't even necessarily view it as positive. But when positive is simply moving to another state beyond the really dismal one that you're in, there's shades of 
You think Shades of positivity. You there. think he's going next door. That's what you're saying. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. We will stop there with a ghost story. It is out now in limited release, I think, New York and L.A. on the 7th, and then it expands to more screens, including here in Chicago this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. What is the best film of 2017 so far? Listeners have their say when we reveal the results of the film spotting poll next. Then, if Adam can get his iPod synced up, we'll review Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. Stay with us. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Right now, I got to tell you about the fabulous, most groovy, Bell Bottom. Bell Bottom. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. The trailer for Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, which opens next weekend, highly anticipated by... Most people we know, certainly by us, it is Nolan's first attempt at a war film slash historical epic. It's based on the 1940 World War II battle and evacuation. Next week on the show, we will review Dunkirk, and we are going to share our top five films of 2017 so far. It's going to be a little bit later than we normally do it. It's typically around the first week of July at the latest, but we did decide that it might make good fodder for a live show, and we're going to have... A little bit of a live show here as we are heading off, Josh, for our annual, I think this is the third annual Spring Green weekend trip for Storm Spotting. Your kids, my kids, our wives, we go up to Spring Green, Wisconsin, and we enjoy the little slice of heaven that is the American Players Theater. Of course, we are bound to say that. We believe it. But in this case, our wonderful producer, Sam Van Hogren, his wife, Carrie, is the managing director of APT. And we love going. We take the kids, we see some Shakespeare, and we see Shakespeare outdoors. Yeah. What can be better than that? Beautiful spot, A Midsummer Night's Dream. That's what we're seeing this year. This summer, and you said a little bit of a live show. That's true because Spring Green is a small town, blessed with a wonderful bookstore slash cafe. It's not huge, though. No. So uh, we're going to – I think our families might fill the place. (laughs) They might. Arcadia (laughs) Books, though. It's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, Arcadia Books is where we're going to be doing this. It's free. So folks in Madison, you're not too far away. If anyone – a little bit of last-minute notice here because we have been off. But, yeah, if you're catching this in time, come on out and join us. It's going to be 2 p.m. 
yeah. Sunday afternoon. And after the show, is it after the show or before you're going to do a reading from your book, Movies or Prayers? I think it might be before. I think it's going to be before. Okay, and I'll have to confirm that. After. But yeah, yeah. So we'll do a little bit of that, talking to folks about the book briefly, and then jumping right into the live show. So yeah. It should be fun. As you said, kind of a small venue, and we're not anticipating a huge audience anyway because it would require some travel, but it's about a three-hour and 15, 20-minute drive from Chicago, depending on where you're coming from. If you are in the area and you want to come out, as Josh said, free, open to the public, 2 p.m. this Sunday. We will take that audio and we'll marry it with our Dunkirk review back here in the studio. And you will get a full show, of course, that weekend as well. Can I take care of a little more book business? Please do. Uh, it came out while we were apart. Movies are prayers. So it's been fun to get some early responses and talk to people about that. We also did a giveaway probably over a month ago. We announced that we had five copies here to give away to listeners on the show. Those entries came in. My daughter Beatrix pulled the names at random so you can trust this was on <laughs> the level here. And I've got five winners. Those folks are John Wickstrom, Brian Hayes, John Barry. Teresa Paris and Anthony Zaragoza. So I will get in touch with you guys and be sure to get a copy of Movies Our Prayers out to you soon. We do have links on our website, filmspotting.net, if you are interested in purchasing Josh's book. And according to Amazon, I just checked 52 reviews and it's got five stars. Now, I cannot wait to pull a Josh Larson on Rotten Tomatoes here and I am <laughs> totally going to knock it off its pedestal. I'm going to make up some name and just spout a bunch of nonsense and give it one star. A little weird being on the other side of the star rating system. I bet. I will say that. I'm, I'm just basically trying not to look. So far, so good. Though. Yeah. I do also want to point out that if you need more information about that meetup, you didn't all catch it or you're too busy to rewind if you're listening via podcast, you can get all the details you would need about that live show taping this Sunday at filmspotting.net slash events. That's where we post about events such as this. It's also where we give away movie passes. And Josh, I do want to quickly, I'll follow up your book giveaway with some movie passes, A Ghost Story, the movie we both really favorably reviewed in the previous segment. That is opening this weekend, as we said, and we have Admit Two Passes, where you can go see it anytime in Chicago theaters during its run of engagement. And then Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, more on that perhaps here in a little bit, that has an advanced screening July 19th at the AMC River East here in Chicago. We're giving away passes to that film as well. I think there might even be one other film where we're giving away some stuff, Josh. So that events page, filmspotting.net slash events, is your best place to go to enter and See what kind of fun contests we have going on. So guess what happened while I was gone? London meetup. I haven't talked to you about this at all. Well, I followed it on Twitter. Did you? Yeah. 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 It was quite an event. We had an absolute blast. Great turnout. Thanks, first of all, to Nigel Smith. Listeners know him of the Tufnell Park Film Club. He helped organize things. We first got together at the BFI South Bank there. I think we had maybe 12, 14 people show up. So I'm sure I'm forgetting some names, but I know Simon, Leslie, Ben, Matt, Marie, Alex, George, and Mark were all there. Great time talking to those folks. We did start at the BFI South Bank, closed that place down. I think this was a Monday night. So I'm thinking London, pubs all over the place. We'll be able to find another quiet pub to go to. Apparently they close at 11 p.m. (laughs) in London. Who knew? So we trusted Ben, (laughs) who said, oh, I know of a place to go. That doesn't sound dangerous at all. 
doesn't sound dangerous at all. We were out way too late, Adam. You know, I would have been tucked in bed if it was oh, up I know. to me. I was going to say, if this was up to you, this has Debbie written all over it. That I've was, been out with you guys enough to know the she's problem. the life of the party. That was the problem. She came along. There was no way we were going home at 11. So she and Ben got together. Could not find a pub. Isn't this madness? Yeah. We ended up at a Cuban bar for like maybe a half hour because they were open. That closed down. After that, I don't even know what neighborhood we went to, but it was an awful disco. Even Ben acknowledges it was an <laughs> awful place, but the conversation was good. I yeah. think Marie tagged along still at that point. Matt was still there. Ben as well. And it really was a lot of fun. I'm glad that we had a chance to do that break up the family vacation, abandon the kids for a little bit, mm. uh, and get out on the town. Yeah, I'm so jealous, not only because I love hanging out with film spotting listeners, and I do hold the record for the meetup the most miles away from Chicago back in 2009. Maybe only four listeners, but still, 2009, Helsinki, Finland. Is Oslo farther? I don't know. There may be a film spotting meetup next summer. Oh, yeah? In Oslo. Is that your big if I, trip? If I have to beat that okay, record. We'll get out Google there Maps. There will be a trip just see. to beat that. And yes, I did come home with some vodka. We'll see if you come home with some vodka as well from Finland. Yeah, I love London. As I've said before here on the show, I spent some time there as a student back in college, and I haven't been back since. So I was very jealous watching some of the tweets come through from that night. And while you were there, we won't get too bogged down in the details, but you did a little book promotion, a little film spotting promotion. I know there are a lot of podcast listeners out there who are also fans of the Mark Kermode film podcast, and you got to appear on a little uncut video segment with him. And we have that if you want to watch it. Just go to filmspotting.net slash press slash press. That's where you can watch that. Yeah, Mark was great. I've listened to his show with Simon Mayo, his podcast they do, which is fantastic for a while now. So it was a real thrill to talk to him. He was incredibly curious about the book, about film spotting. That guy talks fast. So we covered a lot of ground in, I don't even know what it is, maybe 10, 12 minutes, mm -hmm. something like that. But really great to meet him. And he promised he would come on film spotting great. at some point. So we got to make that happen somehow. Yeah. As long as we talk about The Exorcist and he tells you how wrong you are, I'm oh, all for it. We got into it. Unfortunately, after, yeah, after we were done with the video, he brought oh. it up at the very end. Uh, let's just say he understands where I'm coming from, even oh, if he doesn't agree on. with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll give you some more on that in a little bit. <laughs> I don't even want to know. I thought he just repudiated everything you said and cast you out of the studio and <laughs> Here he's a much more diplomatic guy than We're I still am. on good terms. Okay, fair enough. I wanted to give some love to some other film spotting listeners. And we've heard from some of these guys in recent weeks here on the show. Christopher Redman, Casey Taranjo, Jared Young. They have a website called Dear Cast and Crew. They have a podcast. They write reviews there as well. And I just thought this was great. They put together a super cut. 150 movies that name drop Canada. They're from <laughs> Ottawa. Jared's the guy who we mentioned during our top five religious experiences at the movies. He had the voicemail coming in about Arrival. Right. And these are good dudes. I've hung out with them a couple times when I've been in Ottawa, and they put this together, and it's like 13 minutes long. So have I watched the entire thing? Of course not. I'll need three nights to watch the 13-minute <laughs> supercut. But it's really funny. I mean, it's just fun to watch all the times and in all the different ways. Canada has been referenced in the movies, and it was picked up by BuzzFeed and got some good attention. So we wanted to throw them a little more attention, and we will link to that supercut in the notes for the show over at filmspotting.net, which is where you can also find our poll questions. I didn't get to meet you actually up close. I'm Chris. I know who you are. She is lovely, isn't she? Rose? 
Here she is. One of a kind? Top of the line? A real doggone keeper? <laughs> Marcus Henderson is Walter with Daniel Kaluuya in Jordan Peele's Get Out, 99% on Rotten Tomatoes and certainly did very well at the box office. It's definitely in the conversation as one of the best films of 2017 so far. As we said, we're going to get to our top five films of the year so far on next week's show, but we want to see where listeners have come out so far on the year in movies a couple weeks back. We asked you to name your favorite. We gave you these options. Baby Driver, The Beguiled, Get Out, Logan, The Lost City of Z, Personal Shopper, Wonder Woman, or other, if you didn't like any of those options. Josh, how did it come out? Well, let's get the single-digit results out of the way. First, The Beguiled was in last place with 4%. Wonder Woman got 5%. Personal Shopper got 6%. And The Lost City of Z received 7% of the vote. Jumping up a little bit with Logan, which got 11% of the vote. Other came in third place here, 14% of the vote. Up at the top, Baby Driver, 22% of the vote. But Get Out did win our poll as well, 32%. So we're going to talk about Baby Driver here in a moment. I'm not shocked that Baby Driver finished second, but at the same time, little surprised because at the time of this poll question, it wasn't even released yet. I think we posted it just before the movie even came out, and obviously people are still just now catching up with it, and yet Obviously, enough people felt that strongly about it that it's there in second place. Yeah, give it some more time. It might have overtaken Get Out even. Yeah. There was no other pick that got more votes than even the last place film, The Beguiled. But some other popular picks were Raw, which was your number one film from Sundance. Possibly and, going to make my list next week. We'll okay, see. I got a Golden see Brick nominee out yet. Here on Film Spotting, that was the most popular other vote-getter, Trey Edward Schultz's It Comes at Night, which was reviewed back on episode 638, and Kumail Nanjiani's The Big Sick. Also, that's another one where if it had come out a month ago or two months ago, I think it would have fared a lot better in this poll question. And if you haven't yet, I encourage you to listen to my conversation with the star and writer Kumail Nanjiani. You can get that over at filmspotting.net. Just click on interviews. And then Your Name was another popular choice. This is the critically acclaimed Japanese anime film that had a limited run here in the spring. It's about a pair of high schoolers, a boy and a girl, complete strangers, and they suddenly switch places. One morning he wakes up in her body and she in his. So those last three I still need to see yet. So even with our extended deadline on the best of the year so far, I've got a little bit of homework to do. Well, let's hear from Louisville, Kentucky's Aaron Martin on that last film, Your Name. This year has certainly gotten off to a great start. Exhilarating blockbusters, Wonder Woman, Baby Driver, a smart and confident debut from Jordan Peele. But what has stuck with me the most over these first six months is Makoto Shinkai's wonderful anime, Your Name. He provides lush animation and uses great world building and storytelling to showcase love as an intangible profoundly transformative force for self-discovery and companionship. It was such an inventive and fully enveloping story, and I loved every second of it. J.M. Bossy in Vancouver agrees not to oversell it, but your name is easily among the most beautiful works of animation ever made. A beautiful film that captures the deep sorrow in the hearts of all romantics who must spend time apart from their significant others and the grand joys they crave. I couldn't stop smiling even while I was crying like a child. Your name is scheduled to be released on DVD on July 26th, so we're not going to be able to get it in before our top five next week. 
sadly, but at least we know it's going to be released soon. Nicole in San Francisco writes, I love Patty Jenkins' take on Wonder Woman, but my vote is for The Big Sick. This is a true-life rom-com for those of us who wonder why they don't make rom-coms anymore. Funny, intelligent, and moving. The Big Sick is the whole package. Thanks, Kumail and Emily. More big sick love from Danny Cox. Really loved to get out in Baby Driver, and while Wonder Woman might not be perfect, at least two-thirds of it are spectacular. Ultimately, I decided to go with other and give a shout-out to the big sick. Comedy is hard enough as it is, but to make an honest and heartfelt romantic comedy that's as hilarious as it is moving is no small feat. Might not edge out some of these movies later in the year, but for now, The Big Sick it is. So The Big Sick definitely has a shot at making my top five, and as it is still playing in select cities and hopefully expanding to some more. Keep an eye out for it if you haven't seen it already. Definitely recommend it. Wade McCormick in Kansas City, Missouri writes, My favorite so far is Terrence Malick's latest stunner, Song to Song. I didn't see this one coming, Josh. If I could assemble my dream cast for a movie, it would probably include Fassbender, Portman, and Mara. At this point, Malick and Lubetsky are easily one of the best director-cinematographer pairs in history. I hope I'm not alone in preferring Malick's 2010s work to his pre-Tree of Life films, though Days of Heaven is his masterpiece. Wow. He's just wrong all around. <laughs> You well may done, not Wade. be alone, but it's a small, small group, Wade. Song to Song, if you have missed it in theaters, you can get it now on DVD, also on most streaming platforms. Another note here from Andrew Cochran. There have been about six films that have floored me in one way or another. Currently, my top five is Five A Ghost Story, Four Personal Shopper, Three The Beguile, Two Get Out, and One Raw. Although I almost chose Get Out for the sake of this poll, I felt obligated to briefly mention Julia Ducarno's stellar directorial debut. Raw is a compelling genre exercise filled with a visual homage to several of the finest filmmakers within and outside of the horror canon. It's like De Palma meets Hitchcock meets Kubrick. Each frame is gorgeously composed, and the themes are explored and twisted to unfamiliar ends. Ducarno may not be as formally refined as Peel, but her vision is singular and her execution is masterful. Raw is currently available to rent on most platforms. I also believe you can see it via cable on demand. And as we said, one of your favorites of the year so far, a Golden Brick nominee, a film I am certainly going to see at some point. And with all of these comments, I know I should try to see it before we tape this top five. And yet I was mapping out my priorities just last night, Josh, and there's so many films I want to fit in. And I had this movie at about number five, and I fear I'm not going to get to five before we tape. I, I predict, am going to get to. I predict this is one you'll be watching the night before. Oh, yeah. Go <laughs> the brick, brick voting. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. One I am definitely going to get to is this one, which is currently available exclusively on Netflix. Camille Lazar in Cologne, Germany says, Surprisingly, the best movie I've seen this year wasn't even released on the big screen, but was distributed by Netflix. I'm, of course, talking about Bong Joon-ho's Okja. It's something between a Spielberg and Studio Ghibli movie, and despite it being a movie that challenges us to question our collective values, it never gets preachy, but remains a perfect combination of entertainment, sympathy, and realistic resolution. It's a fun ride, but it ultimately shows how fiction has the potential to turn us into better human beings. Well, who wants that? I want it. This is high up on my list to catch up with yeah. before the show. And if you want more Okja talk, you can listen to Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore talk about it on the latest episode of Film Spotting SVU, or you can listen to the next picture show's latest pair of episodes new this week. How about this? They couple Okja, which is a movie that is about a pig of sorts. 
I, I don't know and I don't want to know until I start watching it, but well, there is some sort of creature involved. That is pig-like, and okay. that is <laughs> okay. why pig-like they, coupled, they coupled this movie with 1995's Babe. Of course they did. Why not? A masterpiece. Yeah, so film spotting SVU, guess what? I've never seen Babe either. What? No, I haven't. Oh, it's wonderful, Adam. <laughs> SVU in the next picture Double show. feature. There Babe it is. And why raw. not? I, I have to do my homework for the next picture Babe show. Even raw. They're part of the film spotting family of podcasts. More information is available at filmspotting.com net slash network film spotting svu is presented by movies on demand on cable the art house in your house you can learn more at rentmoviesondemand.com we mentioned some other titles there in the mix they were some of our nominees logan get out personal shopper the lost city of z they are all available to rent on dvd and most streaming platforms wonder woman the beguiled and baby driver they're still out in theaters so you have a chance to see those i'm sure you have lots of homework to do as well before we get to next week's show and our top five films of the year so far we look forward to your responses to that looking ahead two weeks Still a little bit up in the air. We were debating whether Atomic Blonde might be the best film to talk about. We'll get into some of the reasons why. Or Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. You've got in Blonde, Charlize Theron pairing up with one half of the original John Wick directing team versus what happens when you give Luc Besson $200 million. That's That's, what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. IndieWire's David Ehrlich already referenced on this show. He wrote this, Josh, about Valerian on Letterboxd. Imagine if someone projected an entire decade's worth of sci-fi space epics on the same screen at the same time. Imagine you were in the audience for that event. Now imagine, for some insane reason, you decided to pregame for the experience by eating an entire bag full of mushrooms that had been garnished with a fine layer of France's best crystal meth. That more or less is what it feels like to watch Luc Besson's Delirious, Valyrian, and the City of a Thousand Planets. Did you get any of France's best crystal meth when you were just across the channel there in London? Or uh, No, that was uh, when we were in France a couple years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, still have some. So you know exactly what he's mm-hmm. talking about. Yeah. That's good. I can't relate to it. But we were debating this because initially, just based on the descriptions of the film, I was more interested in Atomic Blonde. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that I've only seen one Luc Besson film. I've never seen The Fifth Element. I've never seen all of La Femme Nikita. I'm sure there are others that I'm not thinking of right now, but the only one I do know and I like quite a bit is Leon, The Professional. But I think that's the only one I've seen from start to finish. So Besson coupled with whatever's going on in the trailer that I've seen didn't intrigue me all that much. But then I see David's response to it, albeit a somewhat mixed one. And I see some of the other chatter that's been going on on Twitter. And I guess I'm leaning towards that one being the film we should talk about. I did post a Twitter poll, got about 400 votes in that. And while it wasn't overwhelming, it was fairly decisive. 53% to 47% said we should talk about Valerian. It's hard to imagine something more gonzo than The Fifth Element, but if that's what Valerian is, I I feel like we have to check it out. So well, maybe that's where we should go. And listeners did tell us that we had to earlier in the year, I think at the start of the summer, we asked the question, another poll question, which summer movie that we thought was pretty skippable might we be underestimating? And we said, whichever one wins, we will probably go see and maybe review. And Valerian did win that one pretty handily. So I guess it was inevitable that Valerian would be that film that does screw up our poll question here a little bit. We're going to stick with Atomic Blonde as the inspiration for the new poll. It's a beautiful people we've come to respect. Deathmatch. Atomic Blonde's Charlize Theron versus John Wick's Keanu Reeves. The winner, like all of our deathmatches, they survive. They get to keep making movies. Mm -hmm. Now, the losers' movies, they still exist. They're just not going to make more movies. 
Are you sure that's how it works? We're not. Yeah, I'm, have you I'm the, saying. Have you checked yes. the rule book? Yeah, I they're, think I made them up. Their old movies aren't destroyed. Nope. You can still see Charlize Theron and Monster okay. or Mad Max Fury Road okay. if you want to, but no more films. I'll so, take that into account in so my voting. So who's it going to be, Josh? Because Charlize Theron is an Oscar winner back in 04 for Monster. Now Keanu, he's a seven-time Razzie nominee for worst actor in a film. Though to be fair, he never won a Razzie. <laughs> And he hasn't been nominated since 2002's Sweet November. Now, who was also nominated Just in 2002? to be nominated, Adam. For Sweet November? Yes, Charlize Theron. Ooh. Reeves and Theron also co-starred in The Devil's Advocate. And That's right. We're talking about Keanu. He's made many classic films, given us many classic performances. The Matrix, Bill and Ted's, Point Break, Speed, John Wick, and we didn't even include in there. My own private Idaho, probably my favorite Keanu film other than The Matrix. Very different movie, certainly. The Gus Van Sant film. Charlize Theron, the Oscar win. She's so good as Furiosa in Mad Max Fury Road. So, Josh, do you know which way you're going? Is this an easy one or a hard one for you? It's difficult because they are so similar. This was Sam's brainchild, and I think it's a good one. My instinctual response to each of these actors is the same, that I underrated them for a while. I also feel like they're both better physical performers, maybe, than with dialogue or even with other actors, interacting with other actors on the screen. Um, So how am I going to vote? I am going to say, boy, Angelica Bastian, who's the world's biggest Keanu fan, co-hosted with me on The Beguiled Review. I'm going to say Keanu may have peaked. Okay. If I'm looking forward. And maybe there's better chance of better things from Theron. Okay, well, and that's why I'm voting Charlize Theron. <laughs> well, like any good death match, this is very, very difficult. Like I don't even want to make the choice, and I'm just going with my gut here, and I'm going to go opposite you. And my gut reason why is the same reason why I voted really for Kristen Stewart in a poll many months ago, where we were sort of rating the best actresses who are right around 30 or something arbitrary that we came up with. I think it's because of the choices. And I'm not saying every choice Keanu is going to make is going to be a home run, but I feel like I know what I'm going to get from Charlize Theron every time. Really? That may not be fair. Hmm. She might be the better, more skilled, more accomplished actor, but Keanu is still such a wild card and he makes such interesting choices in terms of showing up in films like the neon demon and the bad batch and, even if the films don't always work, he's really intriguing in them. So I'm going Keanu. All right. We want to know what you think. Vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave some feedback, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. So you're just starting your day, or did you just get off? They call, I go, you know. So what is it you do? I'm a driver. Oh, like a chauffeur. Anyone I'd know? I hope not. What is your name? Baby. Your name's Baby. B-A-B-Y, Baby. So we're getting to Baby Driver a little bit late on the show because of our recent travel schedules and not really being together to talk about this film. We are both certainly big fans of Edgar Wright's work generally, and this film is getting a ton of love. Almost universal praise, Josh. We'll see if we can be in lockstep or not with this 
brief discussion of Baby Driver because it is such a beloved film here by not only critics, but by a lot of audience members, a lot of cinephiles, certainly that we follow on Twitter. We felt like we had to give it a few minutes, and I'm curious if you had as much fun with it as everyone else seemed to. How about the way this thing starts? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's so great. Best opening scene is probably locked up for yeah. the film spotting rap party. It's almost not fair. You might <laughs> we, just have to put it away. We might have to. This opening heist getaway chase set to the John Spencer Blues Explosions bell bottoms, and not this is it about Baby Driver, right? Not set to as in. They pressed play and filmed the scene they wanted to film, mm-hmm. but every action in this car chase sequence is keyed to a musical detail in that song. And I'm just going to give you one example. When they're in the parking garage, whooshing around each column, you know, they pass a concrete column and you get a whoosh and you get a thump in the song mm-hmm. that matches the rhythm. That happens throughout. In that entire opening sequence, it happens in the follow-up sequence where Ansel Elgort, baby driver, is going to get coffee while they're counting the cash, and he's doing this celebratory dance down the street, and it's not only that the music matches his actions, but he pauses to mimic playing a horn in front of a mural painted on a wall of someone playing a horn when we hear a horn on the soundtrack. There's more like that. The second time I saw the film, I've seen this twice now, I noticed that the lyrics to that song are actually spray painted on certain areas of the street. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see certain words pop up. So precise that it almost works as an all out movie musical. Really enjoyed it. I think it's a strong film. I think I would be as high in my praise as most people are if it had stayed in that form consistently. Mm -hmm. I think there's, unfortunately, I think there's a steep drop off to some of the other scenes in the film, but the ones that are working work like. Nothing else I've seen this year. Well, I'd love to just even be as high on this movie as you. Really? Forget as everyone else. Okay. Because what's, what's holding I'm going to shock you here. But first, I will say, I don't know how anyone couldn't be all in on the opening of this film. It's mm-hmm. not just an opening scene. It's really an opening sequence, probably, what, 15 minutes at least oh, of yeah. the opening of the film. And really, the first third of the movie, I'd say at least, the choreography of it all, as you said, picture, sound, music. And that was a moment I had in my notes as well, walking by the music store. It's just one of the most crystal clear examples of the way everything syncs up together in this opening sequence and throughout much of the film, the way he walks by that music store and the horns are there, kind of just suspended in the air next to him at that precise moment when there's a horn break in the song. It's incredibly clever. That's not surprising from Edgar Wright. It's very fun. Also not surprising from Edgar Wright. And I think the driving scenes throughout the whole film, the robberies, they do, of course, feel like musical numbers, not just because of the way music is used, because of the timing with it, but the way they showcase movement, the way the best musicals do it, where it's not about speed or energy or chaos and quick cuts. It's about the physicality of the stunts themselves. It really is a wonder. So I'm watching this at least 20 minutes, maybe 30, as I said, and I'm thinking to myself, without question, this is going to be one of the most exhilarating movie experiences of the year. And then, Josh, a bunch of things happen, and I'll just point out three of them. A movie that was very streamlined, very clear in terms of who every character is, what they're striving for. It becomes unnecessarily complicated and pretty silly and also ugly. More on that later. And it all happens the moment Jamie Foxx's character becomes the focus of the movie and kind of turns into the bad guy of the film. And there's one moment I can isolate it where my 
total demeanor with this film change. And it's the gun deal sequence where they're sent by Kevin Spacey's character for whatever reason to go buy guns that's, that's from the these question. bad guys. That's the thing. Yeah. It, it really doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. And that, as I suggest, is just part of the problem with this sequence. But after that, I'm not sure there's one decision made by any character in the last 30 to 45 minutes of this movie that's really believable. Purely from a screenwriting standpoint, characters are doing things that are either really stupid or not in line with who the movie set them up to be. So that bothered me. But more than anything, when I think about Wright as a filmmaker, and I've liked every one of his films up to this point, whether it's Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim versus The World, big fan, of course, of The World's End most recently— We all think of him as this kinetic director. There's a cool element to the way he stages action. And these sequences, like we've talked about, he is a fun filmmaker, to use that word again. He's a little bit like a kid getting to play with all the awesomest toys, and he's really good at playing with them. That's thrilling to watch. But he's always had this sentimental streak, an emotional core that I really appreciated. I think a lot of film fans do, whether it's the scene with his dad in Shaun of the Dead or the way friendship is depicted in Hot Fuzz, the way friendship and the battle with substance abuse, surprisingly, is in The World's End or romance and I'm sure other elements in Scott Pilgrim versus The World. It's more blatant here than in any of his previous films when you think about the backstory with Baby's character and his mom and the fantasy life he envisions with Lily James's character, Deborah, who's a waitress, and they meet and they have these plans to run away together. That's all there, but this was the first time, Josh, for me, it felt like the kid with all the awesome toys just couldn't restrain himself, and the emotional core is crushed by the cool. And my breaking point was during the big finale. It's one thing to relish everything we were saying here off the top, watching the way Baby and his music and his driving, the way they all sync up together. When Baby as a character is on his game doing what he does best, it's as if he's dictating the rhythm to the world and to everyone around him. That's how comfortable he is. That's how in control he is. So the style matches that, and it says something about the character, and we have a certain attachment to that. For some reason here that I can't figure Well, I suppose I can figure it. Wright applies those same editing flashes to the scenes where Fox and Ham and others are just mowing people down. We're asked to derive the same pleasure we got seeing baby work, watching bad guys point guns and spray bullets and spill blood. And I think that works if you're making, to go back to Keanu, if you're making John Wick and there's a grim but hyper real fairy tale quality to the violence. Right. Baby isn't overly graphic, which actually I think only underscores Wright's lack of conviction ultimately. In the end, it becomes just cartoonish in a tedious way. And I'm going to say I don't think the conundrum of enjoying both Baby's Driving And the way it's depicted and the violence is the point. I don't think there's anything meta at play here. I think Wright just thought it was really cool. And I'll be honest, it it, it made me uncomfortable watching it. I took no pleasure from it. Yeah, the the problem on that front, I think, is that, you know, John Wick, you wouldn't say, I don't think, as much as we appreciate it, is a intense consideration of morality. Mm -hmm. Baby Driver sets itself up as that. Yeah. And then abandons it by presenting the Ansel Elgort character as this kid who got caught up in things and really, you know, has a distaste and an aversion to violence. Really nice touch I liked in the second robbery where he pulls the car up so he doesn't have to see what happens to the security Mm -hmm. guards, reverses, sees the aftermath, and it turns his stomach. That's abandoned. At the same time, what you're talking about happens. Things get more brutal and it's almost as if brutal in a fun way, right. as you're describing, and 
maybe that wouldn't be a quote unquote problem if it had been that way from the start. I agree. Or a different field. So there's an inconsistency there. I I agree. Uh, I will say just to defend it on a few of the things you talked about. I think Fox gives a really good performance, and I think his character is consistent. Yeah. He is the unhinged threat. He's the agent of chaos. He's the unpredictable one. And Fox sells that by underselling it. He lets this character's menace mm-hmm. kind of ooze out and then there'll be a burst of violence, often that we don't directly witness, but we're left to deal with the aftermath. I think that's a good performance. I don't think the movie puts that performance in the place it should be. It goes in another direction with another character who I think is not giving as strong of a performance. Well, let me just say on that real quick, I don't I suppose disagree with you that much. I like Fox's performance overall, and I think it's certainly a consistent performance, and it's a menacing performance, but I think it's ultimately all in service of being that menacing figure so he can adjust how the plot goes. He's a function of the plot. He's not an interesting character in and of himself. There's really nothing more to him. There's no depth to him. No, 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 no. I think Fox gets a couple of interesting dialogue moments where he outlays his philosophy of crime. A couple flashes. I actually like that. And, And I think you do need this agent of chaos to come up against what is a easy world in a lot of ways for Baby up until that point. So so I, I, I did like that performance. I like that element. The sentimentality that you're talking about, I would agree with, though. And I think the problem is that it's not organic here. Right. A, a lot of rights films, especially the ones with Simon Pegg, are very concerned with what does it mean to grow up and mature and how, what does that look like, the tension between youth and adulthood. And that's not really... It wouldn't be an easy theme to place upon this story he's concocted here. So he doesn't really try to do that. Maybe that was a good choice. But the route he goes to bring some sentimentality or emotion or feeling to it is disastrous, I think. This is where the movie went off the cliff for me was almost from the first time Lily James' character, Deborah, this waitress, appears. We're both fans of James. Mm-hmm. We liked Cinderella quite a bit, largely because of her performance. Right. This movie and the blue dress but... is not. Yes, the dress was amazing. This movie is not worthy of her in any bit. And I'm just going to sum it up in one way. She describes herself after they've been out maybe twice. She looks at Baby and says to him, "I'm here for you when you're ready." Yeah, that should not be written. <laughs> it should not be delivered. It should not be filmed. Pretty much sums up what the movie does with her. A fantastic actress, wastes her, and the movie never really recovers from that, I don't think, because it spends more time with them and Mm -hmm. there's no anchor there. It presents these really weird fantasy visions of her standing in front of a car that this is his vision of what he's aiming for. Um, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. So so there's a big drop-off, you know, between these electric car chase scenes and even a scene like when he's at the junkyard, you know? Yeah. And the song comes on. I think it's the Commodore's uh, Easy. and Easy like Sunday morning. There's yeah. a there's a cymbal crash just as he kicks a piece of trash. Beautiful. Yeah, like, it's a like, happy moment. That's the world reflects his inner yeah, emotions. Yeah, that's I, what's great about well, it. Well, and even I, – I don't know if it's happy there, but the, the point is like it's in sync with what he's – thinking about well it's a moment of it's a moment of relief for him so i think he feels a certain joy yeah the point is that it's his inner and outer worlds are meshed yes the the world of the movie the world we're seeing and hearing is meshed with his inner world that's what a musical does Mm -hmm. and that works beautifully the ending of this film is a disaster that you're describing because 
It's the polar opposite of the beginning. There's no elegance to it. Maybe we can just blame it on Queen. They choose to set it to Queen's <laughs> Brighton Rock and not against Queen in general. I don't think it gets used that well, of, actually. It, not no, as well as other songs. It's, it's like a blaring, bludgeoning song in some ways. And that is what happens on the screen, which is the opposite of this sort of deft editing, deft choice of it. it let's just say it takes place in a parking garage instead of an open road. Mm-hmm. And that's part of your problem right there. Uh, I also think, again, going back to the villain they choose to yeah. anchor things on, I don't think that's as it compelling. to Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner to a an extent, bit. which, yeah. like I said, I find not just cartoonish. I find tedious. Yeah, it, 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 it is. Really tiring. It, it's it's just surprising to see a scene like that in an Edgar Wright film. Okay, well, that's Baby Driver, and we certainly expect we may get some feedback from many of you out there who have seen the film. We encourage that. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Our review of Palooza continues. Adam and I were underwhelmed by The Amazing Spider-Man, and we actually skipped its sequel. Will Spider-Man Homecoming bring us back into the fold? Stay with us. save the world, but you're not ready yet. You're the Spider-Man. No, I'm not. I'm not. This is just a costume. This is from the ceiling. Stay close to the ground and stay out of trouble. That's the trailer for Spider-Man Homecoming, movie number 6,432 in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Adam, we're both on record as having owned Spider-Man under ruse. We won't say how long ago, but in our past. Mm-hmm. Was this movie under worthy? Huh. Well, and I have no idea what that means. So I don't either. Take it's it a, wherever you want. It's a really good question because one of my, first I want to say, yes, generally I think it is. I liked the movie. I'm positive on it overall. I recommend it. I am going to spend most of my time tearing it down. Oh, come on. I I don't want to be that guy. Maybe I'm just in a bad mood. But it is one of those films, Josh, where maybe because it had enough promise, the more I've thought about it, ranging from the minutes after I walked out of the theater to now three or four days after seeing it, all I can focus on is the disappointments for some reason. And I'll be the cranky old man and say that one thing I did note is that back in my day, the ability to crawl (laughs) and shoot webs and be insanely strong and acrobatic was enough. Now, apparently, Spider-Man has to be Iron Man 2 and have Hmm. a talking suit. Oh, you didn't like the talking suit. Well, I kind of did. Jennifer Connelly, the voice, Karen, it worked. But See, my parents paid for the talking under roots. So that's (laughs) that's why I I was was fine with this. Okay, so... So I missed out on that. The disappointments for me. John Favreau, 
He plays Happy, the character from the Iron Man movies, from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's not in this movie a lot, but none of the scenes with him are entertaining. None of the interactions with Tony Stark, and I love Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, are as funny or have the same charge as what we saw in Civil War. Yeah, I would say there's too many of them. There's too many of them. Yes. They're not... Agreed. They're just not good, really. I'd say any of them are are that good. Marissa Tomei as Aunt May, wasted. Yes. Largely wasted. They overplay the your aunt is hot joke. Agreed. Yes, they do. And there are a bunch of script issues, I would say, ranging from very minor, Mm -hmm. making a big deal out of the sandwich shop Peter loves in his Queen's neighborhood and watches get destroyed. And then that character and his situation never remotely factor back in to the story to more major like Peter having to learn a lesson, I guess, about what he's capable of and what he stands for, even though I challenge anyone to tell me what lesson he ultimately learns in this movie. He basically pulls the same impetuous act in the yes, climax. Yes. He pulled throughout the rest of the movie, and he gets except rewarded. he succeeds. He gets rewarded. And I'm, I'm just shaking totally my head at the end of the that. film. Totally with you on that. Uh, that's... For me, I don't get it. The glaring flaw there. I, I like how emotionally he seems to move to a different place of maturation, but that logistic was off to me too. Mm-hmm. Like why he was being rewarded at the end for the same action, essentially that he was punished earlier. Right. And, and we can just say he screwed you know, up, st- but it worked. He out. screwed up, so Stark <laughs> takes away his Spidey suit and he does something pretty much the same in the climax. And he's given a spy. You know, yeah, it's like, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, it's underworthy because what I've always wanted a Spider-Man movie to do is capture the reason he was my favorite superhero as a kid was because this seemed like something tantalizingly possible. Mm-hmm. You know, that not that you're going to get bit by a radioactive spider, but that the way I love to climb trees could be amped just enough a degree where I could climb a wall or something like that. You know, this was just a character that I loved and this movie recaptures the sense of joy that came with the character of Peter Parker as well. That same joy of having these powers. I think we talked about this a little bit with Wonder Woman. That's something that was brought back with that performance as well, that it would be really cool to have powers Mm -hmm. like this. I think that Spider-Man Homecoming captures that really well. And a lot of it has to do with Tom Holland's performance, which we got a taste of in Civil War. And he does much the same thing here. I think it works really well. I think this movie works really well as a high school comedy and emphasizes that almost past the point. This is why I wish there were less Stark scenes. If there were less Stark scenes, there'd be more high school scenes. The high school scenes are far better. And I would love to have seen this be even more of a high school comedy that happened to have Spider-Man in it. I think that works really well. The character of Ned, which is Peter's best friend, played by Jacob Batalon. I love that relationship, how he's this dorky kid. And he's kind of our surrogate. Like, okay, if I can't be Spider-Man, if my best friend is Spider-Man, that's almost... As good. I think Michael Keaton makes an excellent villain. We'll get there. As Vulture. Yeah. At first, I mean, he gets the first maybe 10 minutes of the movie. And right. I thought, even though it's Michael Keaton, so I'm interested in what he's doing, it was a little deflating. I had been waiting for a good Spider Man mm-hmm. movie, didn't care for the others. And I thought, where is Spider Man? Come on, get to Spider Man. But it's crucial character setup in that this guy, Adrian Toomes, he's a small businessman. He runs a salvage company. He's been hired to clean up after an Avengers battle. The feds come in, take that away from him, give it to a Tony Stark subsidiary, and tell him to get lost. And so he hangs on to some of the alien hardware that he had been salvaging. 
illegally and turns it into weapons that he can sell. I just like the variation on essentially Breaking Bad's Walter White, Mm -hmm. a guy who was just trying to live an American life. It was taken away from him for this reason. And so he goes nuts off in this other criminal direction. It's a small bad guy. It's a small scale that mm-hmm. this whole movie has, which right. I appreciate. I do too. Um, there's no grand alien bombastic finale. And I think that Washington Monument scene is just a blast. It's really good. Where he, I love that he rescues his friends, that they're on this field trip. Again, it's a high school movie. And I love how the suit comes into play here, even yeah. though it is that enhanced suit with right. more features than we're used to. So, yeah, there, there was enough here to make me overlook some of those flaws that mm-hmm. you mentioned that I would agree with. So I love the Washington Monument sequence. I agree. It's probably the best action scene in the film. And I think it's simply because of the way it's staged, though I think the Staten Island Ferry one is really good, too, where somehow something that should feel so artificial. And I think this is a testament probably to where we're at with CGI or how it can be harnessed properly. It doesn't feel fake to me. Nothing about it did. And I think that we see a lot of shots that show us the action unfolding, where the characters are in the space. It's not about trying to confuse us or just gloss over what's happening and give us explosions or other things to distract us. It's really well staged. And I I think, again, we see that not only in the Monument one, but the Staten Island Ferry one. And they were both sequences that successfully made me dissuspend my disbelief, if that makes sense. Or I don't know if I use that properly, Josh, but what I mean is where you're watching a movie and maybe you're getting, it's getting a little intense and you're getting into it and you go, okay, well, but it's Spider-Man. Of course, he's <laughs> going to save the day. Right. I found myself kind of thinking during the Washington Monument, sure. I don't know how this is going to go. Yes, he might rescue them. Maybe he won't. Maybe someone's going to get right. hurt and many others. Like, you didn't know how they were going to play out. I think that And keys, I appreciated that. I think that keys into a nice element about this film is that he's still not good at this. Yeah. And when he gets this enhanced suit working, that throws him off even more. So I I like the touches where he's swinging through a neighborhood and a little out of control. So he crashes into a shed. You know, it's it'll be interesting to see how they play this going forward because it's a quality you can only emphasize once. Mm-hmm. Right now, he's supposed to be more mature and in control at the end of this film. But I right. certainly think it works well here. Yeah. And I think... I'm with you on Holland, though, did it strike you as well that they seem to have gone in a little bit of a different direction from Civil War? I feel like all he did in Civil War was crack jokes, and he was overly silly, and he's really not here. I think I appreciated that more drawn out over the course of an entire film, as opposed to being the the guy with the quick one-liners all the time who's being a little bit goofy. I like Holland's performance because he's not too silly. He is a little goofy, but he's a serious kid. Mm-hmm. He's also, unlike Tobey Maguire and probably Andrew Garfield to an extent, he's different in that his Peter Parker is not overly angsty. And at the same time, as serious as he is, he's still just a kid. So it gets that right. But when I talk about angst, if he's got a dead uncle, and we can assume he does, or dead parents because he lives with his aunt, we don't really get any sense of how that's tearing him up. The burden of responsibility of being a superhero, that's not something that overwhelms him. Being tortured at school other than one guy using a derogatory word, I suppose, instead oh, of Peter. Tony Revolori. Tony Revolori from Grand Hotel. Hotel. Yeah, I, don't, I don't like that character at <laughs> all. That's kind of like the he goes standard to, bully. He goes to a nerd school, and so everyone's yeah, kind of like him. Yeah. And so well, he's unlike he's those other spider No, stuff he's not. Yet, so you know? I like that, and I think it gets back, yeah. though, to what you were saying about him being a Spider-Man that we can relate to. The one way all the Avengers and Tony Stark stuff works, I think, is that it reflects how 
he's a superhero. We're watching a superhero movie, but he's ultimately a superhero who's just longing to be a superhero. Yeah. That's all he wants to be is to be part of the Avengers. And it's like until he does that, he's not really a superhero. And that's that's all of us as kids and maybe us now watching these movies, wanting to vicariously live through them. And I want to be an Avenger. He wants to be an Avenger. And that's a nice distinction right now. I think that longing to be a superhero because so many of our films, that's a burden the characters wear their superhero dumb as a weight, as a burden, as a curse. Mm-hmm. Now, that can still work. We both liked Logan, and that was certainly the tenor of that film. I love Watchmen, and that was, you know, clearly the main concern there is how being a superhero is not what we've always thought mm-hmm. it was. Uh, then we went through the Nolan Batman films, and things got darker and darker, and we get most of the DC stuff now where it's just dismal. So, again, alongside Wonder Woman, this is a nice pairing yes. of that positive yearning of the exuberance of being a superhero. Yes. And you mentioned Ned and Tom Holland. We'll get more to Keaton in a second. Zendaya, I believe, is her name, who plays Michelle, who is the angsty teen who you get a sense is certainly, by the end of the film, going to play a larger role in future films. She's wonderful, too. So those performances all really work. And I think... Most of the film probably would fall down if it wasn't for Michael Keaton. How great is it that we get a scene, the best scene between a hero and a villain in one of these action movies is just the two of them talking in a car, right? I mean, there is a car scene where Holland's in the back, Keaton's in the front driving the car, and it's a master class in Menace. And it's really low-key. Keaton is really low-key, but high intensity. And... He underplays it, which it's one of those scenes where another actor might have really chewed in to the words a little bit and tried to amp up the menace. But the bottom line is he does what an actor should do. He plays the scene like someone who absolutely believes what he's saying. Mm -hmm. What he believes is stay out of my way because I'm protecting my family. In his mind, that's all he's doing. And he has good intentions in some way, the same way. Peter Parker does. So he believes fully what he's saying in that moment. Keaton captures that, and it's great. That's And that is why the performance is wonderful, but that is why this is a great villain, because mm-hmm. he's not trying to gather the power stones of the universe to rule all of existence. He's trying to keep order in his tiny little corner of the world, and that is something that's much more real that we can relate to, that we can sympathize yes. with yeah, that's... in some ways. And it becomes a much richer dynamic between antagonist and protagonist because of it. So I'm with you completely. I was going to say that I'm certainly not the expert on comic books or superheroes and superhero villains, but I think comic book villains are hard to realize on screen. We have a lot of evidence to suggest that. There's a whole lot of these films that have really unsatisfying villains or uninteresting villains. But we can accept them, I suppose, on a page. At some point, once you get past the origin story, even with the villain, you just accept that the villain is there to be the foil for the hero, to be the opposite of the hero, to be the antagonist. When you have to see them on the screen as people, you have to, I think, understand and accept on some level what's really motivating them, unless they're acting under some kind of spell or they were hurt in an accident and disfigured and they're turned into a monster. In this case, Vulture is just a man. He's a man of opportunity. He's righteously and rightfully angry at a system he perceives is keeping him down. We can understand that. And like Peter, he's someone whose whose ends, as I suggested, are in the right place, even if his means always aren't. And when there's a part of you that's actually rooting for the hero to not thwart the villain— 
and want him to succeed on some level because you're that invested in what he's trying to accomplish, that's a good thing. I mean, that does raise the stakes of that showdown at the end rather than these throwaway villains we've seen. Wonderful detail in that showdown, too, is Vulture's desperation. He wears, I don't think we've said yet, he's built out of this technology, this winged suit that he can fly around with and he has claws for grabbing things. And he's desperately trying to retrieve, even though he's doomed at that point, some scrap of what he was going after, this, right. this treasure in his mind. And there's just something, I think it ties into your notion about how you're sympathizing with him. There's something sad yes. about that as well to the ending. I wish that ending wasn't taking place at night and had a little bit too much CGI <laughs> fires going on. So but, you... but there's still yeah. there's still that element that that does redeem it. I, I don't know. It sounds, Grandpa, it sounds like you liked this No, movie. I did. I said I liked it. And maybe that's why I'm being so hard on it, because I feel like it could have been an even better film if it wasn't for things like i'm with you dang it josh you have put this cgi at night thing in my head now and here i was watching the end feeling like it really doesn't pop at all anything about the end sequence but more than that for me i talked about those very minor kind of structural problems and i can't get into them because i would be spoiling the ending of the film but I don't believe any moment of what's happening at the end of that movie. Anything any character does or what happens to them is stupid. It it just doesn't make sense in the context of the film that it would play out like it does. And that even goes for the very final moments between Vulture and Spider-Man. I just think that there are some corners that the screenwriters cut a little bit too often in this film. But overall, the things that have to work, Spidey and why we relate to him and the villain and those action scenes, they work. Note when the Washington Monument sequence takes place. Bright light of day. I know, in daylight and the Staten Island Ferry sequence as well. That is true. So Spider-Man Homecoming is out now, of course, in wide release. If you've seen it, you can let us know what you thought. Feedback at filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net is also where you can find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, we hope you'll vote in the current film spotting deathmatch, Keanu versus Charlize. And if you haven't already, check out the film spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. You can find both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend, the latest from Thomas Vinterberg, who did The Hunt and The Celebration. It's called The Commune. The Little Hours, which is a comedy set at a medieval convent. It played at the Chicago Critics Film Festival here in the spring. It's got Alison Brie, Aubrey Plaza, John C. Riley, Nick Offerman. And despite that great cast. That is a cast. Oh my gosh, Josh. I was hoping that this film was going to be a surefire Golden Brick candidate. Yeah, you Written saw and directed it. by Jeff Baina, a new filmmaker, an emerging filmmaker, that amazing cast. The great concept that I thought would be hilarious and... Oh, it was such a disappointment. Oh, man. I wish I could recommend it, but I can't. But I am way in the minority on that one. I think it's 80% something on Rotten Tomatoes. Manifesto also out, an art installation turned feature film featuring 13 different incarnations of Kate Blanchett performing a collage of artist manifestos. I love it. You had me at Kate Blanchett. (laughs) And finally, a ghost story in limited release, highly recommended by us. We encourage you to see it. In wide release, Wish Upon, a horror movie. A teenage girl discovers a box with magical powers. Lots of mysterious boxes in horror films, aren't there? But those powers come with a deadly price. They always do. Yes, they do. War for the Planet of the Apes, a movie we are more excited to see also out. And next week, as we teased earlier on the show, we hope to get in a few comments about War for the Planet of the Apes. We will for sure 
talk about Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, which opens that following weekend, and we will share the top five films of 2017 so far. That portion of the show, live from Spring Green, Wisconsin. If you want to come join us to that show, do it. Arcadia Books, Spring Green, this Sunday, July 17th. All the information you need, filmspotting.net slash events. Maybe when you're there, you can tell us your favorite film of 2017 so far. If you're not making the trip, just send us an MP3 or leave us a short voicemail, about 30 seconds, and then we can use it on next week's show about the top five films of 2017 so far. That number to do that is 312-264-0744. You can also find it on the About page at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Spring Green, Wisconsin resident Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We're always looking to reach new listeners, and that is the best way we can bring them in. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.